From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Mexico is suing U.S. gunmakers accusing them of working with drug cartels. California and Illinois have passed laws that allow legislators to ban advertising they believe is targeted to minors. And California Governor Newsom has proposed a 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to basically wipe out the Second Amendment. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Mark Olivia, Director of Public Affairs for the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be back. I appreciate you uh, taking the time for letting me chime in a little bit. Well, Mark, it's been a while since you were here. What have you been up to? Um, well, it's, it's been a, f- a busy spring and summer. I uh, I had a chance, I think you and I were just talking about it a moment ago before we got started, is uh, had a chance to go down with some other veterans to South Florida. I did a little alligator hunting down there. Uh, so I reeled in a, a seven-foot, six-inch uh, alligator. Uh, it was uh, We did it by snag and, and dispatch. So we snagged it with a, a giant treble hook, pulled it in, and then dispatched it with a firearm. And uh, I've got the meat in the freezer, and I'm waiting for the head to come back from the taxidermist. So I did that. And uh, other than that, the, over the summer... Uh, trying to get ready for the, uh, I'm anticipating the fall. So I, just last week, went back out to the to the range and zeroed a couple of rifles to make sure I'm ready for whitetail season. We start here in a few weeks. Well, I was looking at your Facebook page and I saw somebody kissing an alligator. Was that you? Yeah, that that happens. Uh, you know, when you're gonna you gonna get out there and you're gonna hunt a lizard, uh, I guess part of the tradition of uh, the guys who went out with. So it was uh, not something I anticipated doing, and uh, my wife is sure to ask me to. Make sure I washed my face thoroughly by the time I came home. Does anybody get their face bitten off doing that, or I, I mean, is that dangerous or or what? Uh, well, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. After the animal is dead, because of the way the the alligator's brain is, is, is they'll still have a nervous reaction to to muscle uh, movement. So, you know, when you're when you're taking the pictures, they were warning us: don't get your hands hooked up in the jaw to try and open the mouth because they they can still snap shut. So. Uh, even after we killed the animal, uh, it was still, uh, you know, you have to be a little careful about where you're putting your hands around it uh, when you're dragging it in for the next couple of hours. So it's uh, relatively safe uh, and, and a lot of fun to do, but uh, certainly Rel- relatively you have to safe. have your mind about you when you're handling that animal. So, so the advice of this podcast is kissing alligators is relatively safe. Relatively safe and recommended to do it after you, after you dispatch them. Don't do it before. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that that's, that's an important <laughs> distinction. And I, I want everyone to be aware of that. Yeah. So, Mark, before we get started, I just wanted to talk about the National Shooting Sports Foundation. I know that you've always been strong advocates of Second Amendment rights, but it does sort of seem like in recent years, you've been a little more active in terms of legislation and regulation and politics. Is that accurate? Well, I, I think it's, um, you know, I think when you look at the mission of what NSSF is, we, you know, promote, protect, and preserve the the shooting sports and the, and the firearm industry, but 
it's uh, we're not a Second Amendment organization per se. I mean, uh, we're, we're not like the NRA, where the Second Amendment is their mission uh, to make sure that people are able to exercise their Second Amendment rights. But uh, we remind people all the time, your Second Amendment doesn't exist if you don't have the ability to approach the gun counter and lawfully, legally purchase a firearm in your home state. So when there are restrictions that uh, get in the way of that, then certainly there are things that we want to you know, pipe in on. So to say that we've been more active, I think is is probably fair. We have been fairly active over the past few years. Uh, we've, we've drawn a lot of criticism from those on the other side of the aisle on this issue uh, that, uh, you know, w- one of the most recent labels was we're, we're called insidious. Uh, yeah, by, by, by the trace. I saw that article. Yeah, we just, yeah. we talked about that on the podcast. Yeah, the, yeah, the Guardian called us insidious after talking with the trace and and uh, that's something that we're proud to wear as a, as a badge of honor, because if, if uh, everything that we're doing to protect the industry uh, is, is perfectly legal, this is what we should be doing as a trade association. We should be standing up for for those manufacturers, and, uh, both for firearms and ammunition. We should be making sure that you have the ability to get to a range, to be able to go hunt with your kids, uh, to be able to go to a sporting clays range and, and enjoy the Second Amendment rights, be able to protect your family with the firearms that you have a, have a constitutional right to keep them bare. So if that's what they're going to call us, then, then we're proud to wear that label. Well, I mean, we saw a similar evolution of the NRA because they started out basically as a training organization. But sometime in the 70s, they were forced to get into politics because politicians started attacking gun rights. Yeah, it's... um. It's, it, it's again, as a trade association, I think if you look over our history since 1961, that certainly we've been uh, more active than when we started out. Uh, I think the nature of what trade associations do uh, are a lot different than they were back in the 60s. Um, but it's also, you know, it's the nature of our business, too. It's uh, I remind people all the time that, you know, we're a trade association like any other. Uh, you know, we just like the automobile industry has a trade association advocating for their manufacturers. We do the same. It just happens to be that our product is, uh, you know, firearms and ammunition, and that's going to excite people one way or the other. There's there's not a lot of people who are kind of in the middle on this issue. So it is a lightning rod issue, and, and it's one that we're glad to stand in the door and, and make sure that we're protecting our manufacturers who are making a constitutionally protected product. And there's, there's nowhere in the Constitution that you have a constitutional right to to keep and bear an automobile, but you have a constitutional right to keep bear arms. And we're going to make sure that we have, uh, we're representing our manufacturers who are making that a, an ability for you to exercise every day. Well, I'm glad that the National Shooting Sports Foundation is stepping up. I think you're doing a great job. And certainly with all the attacks that we have out there, we need everybody on board that we can get. And one of the first things I wanted to talk about, speaking of lightning rod issues, a lawsuit uh, launched by Mexico against U.S. gun manufacturers. Now, it's this uh, ongoing $10 billion lawsuit, and it was dismissed by the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts, and it's now on appeal. But basically, Mexico was accusing manufacturers of facilitating the illegal trafficking of weapons by drug cartels, of all things. And they were suing Beretta, Barrett, Century Arms, Glock, Colt, Smith and Wesson, Ruger, and you know, essentially accusing them of, of being in league with drug cartels. Yeah. Now, the you know, it was dismissed. The district judge wrote that, yeah, cartel violence is real, but gunmakers are not to blame. And then Mexico launched another lawsuit against some Arizona 
firearm retailers for essentially the same thing. Mark, what's going on with all these Mexican lawsuits against manufacturers? Yeah, I think uh, let's start out by saying that, you know, we certainly, um, you know, feel for the Mexican people who are, are suffering under this, you know, unspeakable violence that's happening south of the border. You know, nobody's uh, citizens should have to bear that kind of, um, you know, reign of terror, essentially, that's happening by these drug cartels. Um, but but it is exactly true what the judge said at the district court level is that, um, you know, this is not the fault of the manufacturers, of the firearms. Every firearm that is made in America and sold in America is sold with a background check. Uh, when you and I walk into that into that gun store and we buy that firearm, we we attest on that form 4473 from the ATF that we are, in fact, the true purchaser of that firearm and that we're not a prohibited individual. And then that information is verified by the FBI's nationalistic criminal background check system. So if someone is straw purchasing a firearm, illegally purchasing a firearm for somebody else, and they know they're going to traffic that firearm somewhere else, they're the ones committing the felony, not the manufacturers. The manufacturers are lawfully making and lawfully selling those firearms. The retailers are selling those firearms lawfully. It's the one who is lying on the form and, and illegally trafficking that firearm is the one that's uh, you know breaking the law, and they're the ones who need to be held responsible. Um, but you're but you're right. So they they brought this lawsuit. It was dismissed by the district court. Uh, they brought a similar lawsuit against uh, five retailers, I believe it is in Arizona, uh, and that uh, that petition for dismissal is pending. Uh, we believe that it will be dismissed as well there. And these are all being dismissed under under grounds of the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act or the PLCAA, and that essentially says that you can't um, sue a manufacturer for the harm brought by someone else's criminal misuse of a firearm. That would be going like going back to Ford and Anheuser-Busch and suing them for the harm that's caused by drug drive, drunk drivers. So it would kind of be like us going to Mexico and saying, well, we're going to sue you because all this illegal criminal drug activity that's happening in America, right? If they're the, if Mexican government isn't the one responsible for it, then they shouldn't have to be the ones to pay for it. But we think that there is, there is ties to corruption. We've certainly seen this when we have Mexican generals, Mexican officials that are now sitting in U.S. prisons because they've been tied to these cartels. And I think it's important to understand, too, is that, you know, there's only one gun store in the entire country of Mexico, and that's in the heart of Mexico City and in the heart of a Mexican army base. That's the only place anybody in Mexico can go buy a firearm. So when we start to see all these uh, reports of, of U.S. arms being turned over or and being traced back to the U.S. I think it's, we need to take that into one. These are only the firearms that are being turned in for tracing. The ones that they know are not U.S. manufacturer based, they're not turning those in for tracing. They don't even bother. So the ones that they're turning in for tracing. So where are they coming from? Where are all these firearms that the U.S. has been supplying to Mexican police and Mexican armies that we know are walking off the basis? If this is the only place in Mexico you can buy a gun, then how are these guns getting off of that base? So we know that there's rampant corruption. We know that the cartels are smuggling arms in, not just through uh, through America and, and, and illegal buyers trying to run that across the border, but they're getting them from other sources as well. So behind the curtain, and this yeah. may, may be surprising, maybe not surprising to some people, this may not have been Mexico's idea originally. There are Brady Center lawyers representing Mexico. So now I'm not surprised by that. I mean, this strikes me as just, you know, what some people call lawfare, 
which is, you know, going to war against the firearms industry with the law. So so is this just another tactic by, by the Brady Center to try to attack yeah, uh, firearms yeah, manufacturers? It, it really is. And it's not something new that we've seen. I mean, obviously, they've been trying to come after PLCA since it was signed in 2005 by President Bush. And again, this was a bill that had wide bipartisan support in the House and the Senate. And it's basically codification of what had always been tort law in the courts anyway. These cases that were being brought up before then were always dismissed. They were always torn out of court. And former, uh, you know, acting or former HUD secretary and former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo was infamously quoted as saying the whole purpose of these cases against the fire manufacturers in the late 1990s and early 2000s wasn't to actually have a victory, but it was to bleed the manufacturers to death through a thousand cuts. They knew that they had junk lawsuits. They just want to keep dragging manufacturers back in. And that's what they're trying to do now. They're trying to poke holes in the PLCA, which has been upheld and de- upheld at the Circuit Courts of Appeal, and has actually been defended by the Biden administration, Merrick Garland-led Department of Justice. So this is a constitutional law. They just can't find a way to poke a hole in it. And they're trying to use Mexico now as a way to do that. They're actually appealing that case. That case has recently been heard at the U.S. Court of Appeals, the First Circuit, uh, First Circuit Court of Appeals, rather. And and so we're waiting a decision on that. We expect that that will be a de- that their appeal for uh, a rehearing will be dismissed as well. So, um, but, you know, this isn't anything new. Brady did the same thing in Colorado. We, we recently, you know, were battling things in Colorado. They had convinced a family to sue the fire manufacturers, not telling them that should you lose this case, you will be on the hook for all the legal costs incurred by the, by the defendants. And when the plaintiff family, the victims of someone who had, you know, who had seen their child die from a heinous murder in a movie theater, they lost that case, and then they found themselves $300,000 in debt, and their house can be foreclosed on because they couldn't cover the legal costs. Brady walked away from that family, left them high and dry. And that's unconscionable to go in there and tell them, abuse the course for a case that we know you can't win, and then to walk away from them, leaving them with a $300,000 legal bill. But this is what Brady does. They will use and abuse victims to try and get their way to, to push gun control on the rest of America. Now, there's this myth out there perpetrated by the media and others that this law and and other laws basically shields firearms companies and you can't sue them, right? You just can, no matter what, you cannot sue firearms companies. That's not true, right? I mean, you could, if if I'm in my Ford F-150 and the brakes don't work and I get hurt, I can sue them because it's a defective product. If I, you know, buy a Colt AR, and it blows up in my face, I get hurt, I can sue Colt because of a defective product. So well, what, what's the difference, just to explain this, the, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, why did we need that law if we already have established in law that you can't sue people for the criminal misuse of a product? Yeah, it, it's interesting. We needed the law because there was abuse of the courts, and they were they were clogging up this course with these junk lawsuits. And essentially, what it does is it goes back and it says that you can't bring a lawsuit for somebody that causes criminal harm with the misuse of that product, as long as they're a, a remote third party, right? So if I have no association with Louisville Slugger, I don't work for Louisville Slugger. I don't. But if I go out and misuse their bat and beat someone to death with that bat, Louisville Slugger is not going to be held responsible for that. I, as the one who committed the crime, would be the one who's going to be held responsible. Same thing happens with firearms. This is a lawful product, lawfully made, lawfully sold. If someone criminally misuses that product, 
to take somebody else's life or to cause criminal harm to somebody else, the criminal is the one that's responsible for that crime, not the firearm manufacturer that lawfully made and lawfully sold that product. Now, you mentioned that they were doing this sort of thing in the late 90s. Is that when it started, this whole lawfare approach of, you know, weaponizing the law, weaponizing the courts? Had it ever happened before that? Yeah, I have to go back and look at the history a little bit closer, but that's kind of really when it started to grab on and get traction. We started to see a lot of this happen. And the interesting thing is we're seeing now as states are are passing laws to allow these lawsuits, and we're challenging those laws. Um, But it's a replay of of everything you saw 20, you know, 25 years ago. So everything's being churned back up now in California, in Washington State, in New York, in uh, New Jersey, and in Delaware. Uh, They're all writing these laws that will allow, you know, the attorney general, civilian parties to bring these civil lawsuits against manufacturers for harm committed by somebody else who didn't obey the law. And that's that's it's bunk and it's going to be thrown out again. And under the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, all they're all these people are doing is giving false hope to anybody who thinks that they might be able to do this and, and, and prey upon, you know, these victims, families. But it's also clogging up the courts. Instead of going after the criminals, so the ones you know committing these crimes and causing these harms, they're going after the manufacturers because they think they see it as big money. Well, so how does this work? The uh, the, the federal law, that's the PLCAA, mm. uh, that it, it does not jibe with these state laws like California that says you can sue manufacturers. So how do they get around that? How do you sue a manufacturer if the state says yeah it's legal, but the Fed says no that's not legal? Yeah, Dean, that's a really good question because you don't. I mean, the federal law still applies. The federal law is still there. It has been upheld by courts of appeal. It has been been defended by this Department of Justice led by Merrick Garland, Biden administration. So it is still federal law. It is still the law of the land. And that applies to all 50 states. So these attorneys general to these legislatures that are passing these laws, that are pushing for these laws, they know that this is a, this is going to run up against a brick wall. But again, they don't care. The whole point about it is to gain the headline, get the splash in the news, and clog up the courts, and again, hope to bleed those companies dry through the death of a thousand cops through legal costs. They don't care that they're abusing the law, that they're abusing the, the emotions of these people, and that they're running rampant right into the, into federal law. Well, there's another example of lawfare, and this is this uh, firearm marketing ban that they have in California and Illinois. And I think they're they're trying this in some other places as well. Basically, the idea is they pass laws that allow lawmakers to ban advertising that they believe is targeted to minors. Now, your organization, National Shooting Sports Foundation, has filed a legal challenge to these laws saying that they violate the First Amendment for free speech or specifically for commercial speech rights. So, Mark, tell us about this case. What's going on? Yeah, so uh, earlier this year, California, and then uh, just a few weeks ago, um, you saw Illinois uh, banned commercial advertising that could be considered appealing or could be tar- they consider it could be targeted at uh, minors uh, that they think is trying to entice minors to buy firearms. And again, this is, this is kind of a bunk law because I, I point out to media all the time, we talk about this, um, you can only purchase a firearm if you are not a prohibited individual. And prohibited individual category under those prohibited individuals is anyone under the age of 18 is prohibited from buying a long gun, uh, that being shotguns or rifles. 
And anyone at the age of 21 can't buy a handgun. That's federal law. So who are these people advertising to? They'd be advertising to you and me as adults and, and as parents who may want to talk to our kids about responsible fire ownership or pass along the Harding heritage that we may have grown up with and trying to teach them about their responsibility of, of owning a firearm and keeping that firearm securely, you know, locked up when it's not in use and, and, and enjoying our second amendment rights and in, in a responsible manner. So it's, it's not really that they're trying to come after kids buying guns because kids can't buy guns. So what they're trying to do is eliminate the ability for you and I to be able to talk about that with a manufacturer who might be able to provide a product to do that. They're pointing out the, the We One Tactical JR-15 as an example of this. And they're apoplectic that someone may design a, a, a modern sporting rifle that is similar to an AR-15, but much smaller. And again, these are 22 caliber rifles, comes with a one round and a five round magazine, and actually has an extra safety on it. Uh, that has to be pulled out, twisted over for you to disengage the safety to flick that thumb safety over to fire. Um, again, we're talking about adjustable stock. Everything that they want to demonize about the AR-15, they're demonizing about this uh, JR-15. But this rifle is no different than the cricket that you and I may have grown up trying to shoot when we were kids or any other youth-sized shotgun or youth-sized rifle that we have made learn to use at a younger age. It's now just a modern frame of that that is now adjustable and has some of these cosmetic features that they don't like. But really what this is getting at is, is trying to eliminate your First Amendment commercial free speech as a manufacturer to be able to talk about responsible firearm ownership with an adult who may want to teach their kid. So if you eliminate that conversation about being able to have a firearm that could fit them, then you could teach your children how to use a firearm responsibly. Well, then you're eliminating that conversation for that, that youth growing up. And when they turn 18, turn 21, they've grown up with this notion that the Second Amendment is, is a bridge too far. It's not there for them. And they're setting the ground for elimination of a Second Amendment right for that next generation. That's just something I can't handle. Again, what they're doing is getting rid of that First Amendment right to come after your Second Amendment right. These are both constitutionally protected uh, freedoms that belong to us, not to the government. They can't just hand them out willy, you know, and take them back willy-nilly. These belong to us. And that's what we're challenging these two laws, both in California and Connecticut. And I'll, and I'll remind you, as just this past week, New York introduced a similar law that they'll take up for consideration when they come back into session after the first of the year. So there's some unintended, or maybe if I'm a bit more cynical, maybe intended consequences. I was reading an article on your website that said the USA Clay Target League suspended their activities in California after this advertising law was passed. Because after all, it carries a $25,000 civil penalty for each instance of firearm-related marketing to persons under the age of 18. The way they were reading it is, hey— you know, we're, we're having, we have this clay target league and our advertising might be, you know, looked at as appealing to young people. So we might be sued. And if you have, you know, a hundred kids show up for a clay shoot, well, that's like what, $2.5 million. So, you know, that, that's going to scare any sports organization. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it was at a pretty significant and pretty uh, ready impact there in California to the point where even the state uh, wildlife agencies weren't able to talk about hunter education safety courses. So they had to go back and actually write a patch to that law to allow to talk to kids about hunter education so they could come in and, and be uh, you know certified to get their hunting license. And so they had to change that. They, they wrote junk law and they knew it. 
They knew it at the time. They don't care. And again, I think what we're seeing here is the reaction to, especially Bruin, the Bruin decision changed the landscape for so many things that what we're seeing now is these legislatures that are virtually anti-gun are just throwing everything they can against the wall to see if they can get something to stick and just make you go back to court to challenge it. They're running on a campaign against the Supreme Court, which is which is pretty scary if you sit back and, and look at this as an active citizen who's taking part in, in your government. When you start to see one one side of the government kind of open warfare against another, and that's it's pretty scary. This is overreach, uh, you know, where there should be balance between the three branches, right? Between the executive, between the the legislative, and between the the judicial uh, systems. Uh, now we're starting to see that there's a you know a significant overreach by the legislatures and the executive uh, trying to tell the court that you should do what I want you to do, not what the law says. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Hunter Education. Um, I read that the Biden administration, through the Department of Education, basically stripped funding for Hunter Education and archery programs through what they were calling the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? I mean, are, are Hunter education classes just being shut down now? Yeah, they, they are. And that's pretty sad, especially as we're going into this next school year, right? Uh, so a lot of schools, especially some of those schools in rural areas, and I remind you, states like Alaska, I mean, they're teaching hunter education and, and survival to their students because many of those students in those remote areas are still subsistence hunters. They're learning this as a way of life to feed their families. But yeah, they stripped out this hunter education saying that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act said that you couldn't, uh, you know, have any kind of education program that talked about dangerous weapons. So that out goes hunter education and out went archery. And you have the authors of this law that are looking back at this saying, this is not what we said in the law. It's not in the intent and it's not in the language. This was a purposeful misinterpretation by the education secretary, Miguel Cardona, uh, to look at this and, and satisfy these gun control zealots to find any way they can to twist the law in their way. So we've had bipartisan letters from both the House and the Senate. Several of these go from uh, from the from the, both the Senate and the House to uh, the Education Secretary to say you need to roll this back. Uh, we've had letters go from 23 states attorneys general to Congress saying that they need to pass legislation that's been introduced by a couple of different members of Congress to protect this kind of uh, funding for these programs. Uh, you've actually had uh, governors writing in on this as well. And today uh, you had the the uh, AWCP letter, the Association of Wildlife Conservation Partners, uh, which are a bunch of, they're about 50 different consortiums, groups like NSSF were part of it. We helped lead this letter. Uh, you know, groups like uh, uh, the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation, you know, TRCP, so all these other uh, conservation-minded groups saying, hey, this is really going to hurt the way we teach uh, these programs and, and the way we reach out to them. These are actually safety programs. And if the administration was, invested in safety for kids with firearms, they would want to teach these programs that teach kids how to properly handle, how to properly, you know, store and stay away from firearms that don't belong to them to make sure that they're not going to hurt themselves or others. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that uh, the administration really cares much about safety. I mean, none of these policies or none of the legislation or the interpretation of regulations, none of this is really designed to curb criminal misuse of firearms, right? It's not about crime. Yeah, it's it, this is 
This is nothing that they've put forth in any of these policies that talk about going after the criminal. I've yet to see anything that come from this administration saying we're going to start to crack down on criminals. In fact, if anything, they're they're going after policies that are going to make it even easier for that criminal to walk in the front door of the jail and walk right out the back door within the same day. But they want to come after and make your ability to exercise your Second Amendment rights as difficult as possible and erase that right from the next generation. We're seeing that they are purposely mistwisting, they're purposely twisting the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. And we've heard rumor that they're going to continue to do so, that, that they're eyeballing uh, you know, ways that they can go after you as a personal firearm owner. If you own a firearm that you've had for 10 or 15 years and you sell that to somebody else, they're going to say, well, now you might, if you make a profit on that gun, you've had it for 10 years and now it's risen in value two or $300. And well, now now you're in a business and you have to run a universal you have to run a background check. So they're trying to find a way to tweak in a universal background check and make everything go through. Is that make it more difficult for you to be able to sell a firearm personally? And again, this is a, a twisting of the narrative of the language and the intent of the law as it was written. So we're waiting to see what happens with that. But yeah, we're seeing a complete antipathy uh, for the respect of the law for the way it's working. Uh, and for and for trying to work with any members of Congress to find you know common ground solutions. So the third topic, Mark, that I'd like to talk about is out of California, of course, and this is the 28th Amendment. And if you've, uh, if our listeners have not heard about that, we've covered it a little bit. This is an, an idea from Governor Newsom out there. He wants to introduce a 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. They're calling it the Right to Safety, or officially it's called the Senate Joint Resolution Seven. So the idea is to put this right into the Constitution and strip people of the current interpretation of of uh, Second Amendment rights. What what it actually does is it calls on the U.S. Congress to call a constitutional convention under Article Five of the Constitution, and the things that they want to insert into the Constitution is raising the minimum. Uh, age to purchase the firearm from 18 to 21, mandate universal background checks, institute waiting periods for all gun purchases. It doesn't really specify what the waiting period is. It just says waiting periods. And then it wants to, now the way this is being reported, this fourth one, that they want to, for so-called assault weapons, they want to ban the purchase of them, but that's not what the language actually says because I went and read the actual amendment, and it talks about civilian possession of assault weapons. So they want to ban possession. Now, that brings up an interesting question. All of this brings up interesting questions. But as far as I know, there are, what, 24, 25 million sporting rifles, so-called, quote-unquote, assault weapons in civilian hands. If they're going to ban the possession of these, how exactly are they going to enforce that? What, What do you just think about all of this, Mark? Yeah, it's uh, is of two minds on this, and and we've been following this closely with Governor Newsom. Um, you know, the first is that you know, we should take them seriously, and and I think uh, anybody who's talking about trying to amend the Constitution, you have to take that seriously because it's a very serious proposal, as, as far fetched as it may seem. And, and thank goodness our our founding fathers had the foresight to make it such a high hurdle to be able to uh, amend the Constitution. Of course, you have to get not just the convention of the states together, you have to get, you know, you have to get all the states to agree. You have to get, you know, three quarters of the states to agree. You have to get the Congress to agree. It's a really high bar to get all these people on the same page to make a change to the Constitution 
uh, and it, it's going to be really hard sell for that to happen. And that and that's a good thing. It should be hard to change our constitution because these rights are so important to us. The interesting thing is Governor Newsom is saying that this proposed 28th Amendment respects the Second Amendment. And, and I can't find how that happens when it relegates your Second Amendment right to a government privilege that they can grant or take away from you. If they're telling you at the age of 18 that you can vote, you can worship the God of your choice in, in, or your deity of your choice at whatever church you want, you can speak out against your government, you have, you know, your Fourth Amendment rights all belong to you. Uh, but your Second Amendment rights, you can't exercise those now to your 21. So that automatically negates protecting and respecting the Second Amendment. By telling you that you can only cert- own certain firearms, again, the right to keep and bear arms. Arms was not defined as a, as a flintlock musket in, in, the 1790, in the 1791 when they ratified the Bill of Rights. Uh, it is not something... Uh, that the the founders believed was going to stay static and that that arms would develop over time, just as we've seen freedom of the press has developed over time as the, as the printing press became what we use today in modern technology to communicate. Um, So it's, it's, it's ludicrous to think that anything that he's proposing would respect second amendment rights. And you're absolutely right. I took a look at the same language. I saw the same thing you did. He said, no, we're just going to, you know, you you know, cut off the purchase of AR-15s and, and keep that from happening anymore. But yes, you're right. When it talks about the language of that, when you start to look at it, it says no civilian possession. So that would mean they would have to come to my doorstep, knock on my door and say, we need your, your AR-style firearms. And that is a recipe for disaster. Over 24 and a half million of these firearms are in, in circulation today. And that figure is conservatively low because we use figures that come back through the ATF, reported from the manufacturers to the ATF, and they get get churned back out. And we know that those numbers are always about 18 months old by the time we get them. And we're expecting new numbers here shortly, but we expect it's going to be well north of of 25, 26 million of these firearms in in private possession and circulation today. So if they're going to think they're going to round those up from people who have been respecting their Second Amendment rights, it's, it's really... Kind of, kind of scary that they think that that could happen and that would happen, you know, so easily. We hear these arguments all the time. Well, you can't, you can't possibly go up against a government that has F-16s. Well, are, that that proposes the question that one, they think that the government would be willing to go to war with its own citizens. Two, they also propose that people in the military would go to war against the citizens that have sworn an oath to defend their constitution and protect their rights. I served 25 years in the Marine Corps. I don't think I'd be calling it a lawful order for them to, for somebody in the military or for my president to tell me to take up arms against the people that I'm protecting. That's not a lawful order. So I think we have some serious concerns about this that we have to take seriously. On the opposite end of this, everyone's saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be worried so much about it because, well, Gavin Newsom, it appears he's just trying to position himself to be the next president of the United States, whether that be in 2024 or 2028. Now, we look back when in a, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, when the president was out of the country, Gavin Newsom very quietly just happened to pop into the White House and let himself around the Oval Office and, and maybe measure the drapes while he was there. See what see what might look good when he might have a chance to put his feet up on 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 the resolute desk. And, uh, you know, it's it's we're seeing the same thing. A lot of people saying that this isn't anything seriously. This is trying to grab a headline and they're trying to put it out there so that he gets the name recognition and gets all the people who are anti-gun to kind of line up with him and say, this is the guy who's going to give us our answers. 
Are you aware of any other states that have called for this? Because I guess the way this works, and this is a little confusing, I'm not an expert on this in, in any way, but if you're going to have a constitutional convention, you have to have a two-thirds vote of both the House and the Senate, or um, I think two-thirds of the states have to request it. And if they request it, then you have to have the convention. So yeah. have any other states called for this? Yeah, there, there's a, I think there are a couple out, outstanding calls for convention that you've seen kind of hanging out there, lingering. Uh, some people who want to you know, change the Constitution have been talking about it. But I think it's one of those things where even those states who may agree with what Governor Newsom is trying to do are saying, maybe this isn't a good idea. Because if you do get a convention of the states, the answer you get back may not be the one that you like. So if they open up a convention of the states, everything is open now. Now that you have the states convening again to possibly rewrite the Constitution, and that means anything in the Constitution is open for amendment, right? So they could go in and completely re rewrite everything, and we could see some things happening in there that they don't want. So I think the likelihood of this happening is pretty low. But I think, and I haven't seen any other states that said, hey, we think it's a really good idea. But what Governor Newsom is, is starting, he's, he's starting the, the, the mechanisms to get this thing moving forward. We've seen that the, the, the California Assembly, the General Assembly is, is moving behind this. If they pass it through and he signs that resolution, that resolution is going to go to Congress and they will have to consider it. They'll take a look at it. Doesn't mean they're going to act on it, but it will be considered. And these are what set in motion these kinds of things. And again, they may not get the answer they want. If you get a constitution, you get a convention of the states trying to consider amending the constitution. When you get people from, you know, Texas and Montana and Wyoming and some of these other conserv very conservative states that say, California, you're gooning this up left, right, you know, in the six ways of Sunday. We don't want you doing to the rest of the country what you've been doing to your own state. I think pretty much anybody would be scared to have a convention like that. I, you know, whichever side of any issue you're on, because how could you predict the outcome? Why why would you want to do it that way? You you know, you propose something like this, and then as you say, it could completely go against you. I mean, it could this could really go south. Yeah, it, it is truly asking to open Pandora's box, or or if you want to use the other analogy of the of Schrodinger's cat, I mean, you know, is what is what are you really dealing with? It may not you you are trying to grab the tiger by the tail if you go into this thinking that you're gonna come out of it with the answer to just get the gun control wish list you think you're going to get. Yeah. Well, Mark, all of this is really crazy stuff. I'm really glad that the National Shooting Sports Foundation, you know, I, I subscribe to your your newsletter. You know, you're involved in a lot of lawsuits. You're really involved with this. You're out there protecting, you know, the industry, but, you know, also uh, all of us. So thanks for what you do and thanks for what the organization does. Mark, where can people find out more about the National Shooting Sports Foundation? Yeah, you can go to our homepage at nssf.org. Now, if you want to find out what's going on in the news, you click that media tab, you look at our press releases, look at our blogs, and you kind of see what we're trying to do. We, we try to keep those updated. And again, we, if you're not a member uh, and you're in the industry, if you're a manufacturer, you're a distributor, retailer, or range, and you're not a member, consider becoming a member because we're working on your, your behalf and your benefit. You know, it isn't just Chacho Show that we're doing every year. We're working day in, day out at, in Congress and the state capitals and the quarters are very active. It's it's really hard to keep up with all the stuff that we're trying to do, but but we're doing it. And, and I'll say this much for the guys and the, and the men and women I work with. You know, each one of us is, is, is very passionate about what we do. We didn't come into this job 
by accident. We came into it because we have a passion for the firearms that we use. We have a passion for the shooting sports and the hunting sports that, that we have all grown up with. We want to make sure that that's preserved uh, for the rest of us. People joke with me all the time, man, you must get to hunt and shoot all the time because you work for NSSF. And I remind them, I, I work a lot so that you can get out and hunt and shoot. And I hope that you're able to do that. Well, Mark, uh, I appreciate your spending some time with us today. Hey, be careful kissing those alligators, man, because I think that might that might go south on you pretty quick, too. Uh, but, 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 yeah, there you go. So, Mark, thanks a lot, and I hope we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Dean. Good talking to you. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's JoinBFA.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.